So if uh, you're joining with us for the first time today, we began a new series a couple weeks ago studying together the prophet Elijah. And we are going to continue in the series once again today. And I want to begin by sharing with you about a book that I just finished. So I just finished reading uh, a biography on the life of Philip Yancey. So anybody here familiar with Philip Yancey? He's a Christian author, really brilliant, wonderful thinker. He's written a number of books like The Jesus I Never Knew and What's So Amazing About Grace. And his books have just touched and, 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 and affected a lot of people's lives. And so I was interested just to read his memoir. And it's interesting because he tells the story of growing up in the deep south in a very, very strict fundamentalist and conservative home. And he said it was odd because his mom was considered a saint by everyone in the church. And she lived this very compelling life, you know, she taught Bible studies, and she was known as this, she was a widow, and so she was raising these two young boys, and she didn't have a lot of resources, and yet she was laboring and serving Christ, and everybody around him thought that she was a saint, but he said that when she came home, things were a little different. And she would get outraged, and she had a lot of trauma and pain on the inside, and she would oftentimes just verbally, sometimes physically abuse her kids out of her own pain and heartache. But there was a very different picture going deep below the surface and in her home than there was on the outside. And then after he graduated from high school, he went away at his mother's request to a very fundamentalist conservative Bible college. And one of the things this school prided themselves on is that in the midst of a culture that was increasingly getting more and more secular and dark and ungodly, you know, this was the 60s and there was a civil rights movement and there was a sexual revolution and there was a lot of uh, tumult in the society and they prided themselves that in the midst of a culture that was going darker and darker and darker, they were going to be faithful and true and they were not going to accomplish to the world around them. And so at this Bible school, you could not have long hair or an unshaven face, and you needed to wear a suit and a tie. And of course, there was no rock and roll music, and there would be no physical contact with anybody of the opposite sex, not even hand-holding. And, um, you know, you, you just had to be deeply, no cards and no dancing and no playing. And also at this school, black people were not allowed to attend. And it's striking, I think, and obvious for those of us looking back, how, how, how a church and how a school and how a group of Christians can, on the one hand, believe that they are not accommodating to the world that they are standing against the world, that they are being true and righteous, and yet all the while they are accommodating to the world in the most bizarre and the most awful sort of way. And of course, this sort of thing happens all the time. Now, I don't know hardly any Christian. In fact, I can't even call to mind a Christian that I know that thinks that rock and roll music is ungodly, you know, I mean, I think long ago we realized, why should the devil have all the good music? You know, I mean, it wasn't that a song, Larry Norman, back in the 60s or 70s. Um, but, you know, you know I, and I, I, I know almost no Christians that would say that the, the, the Jim Crow laws in the South and the KKK with all of their uh, Christian rhetoric that they used to justify what they were doing, nobody would say that that's right. They would say that was a, sh that was a rank accommodation to the world. 
But I think it's a little bit more difficult in our own day asking the question, where is it that the church today has accommodated? And what does it really mean to be in the world and not of the world? You know, we are not to love the world or be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Jesus said, I have not taken you out of the world, and yet Jesus says, you are not of the world. But what does that even mean? Because a lot of us, we live in, the all of us live in the world, right? And maybe some of you have tried to withdraw from the world and live in a little Christian subculture, a little Christian bubble, but most of the folks in this room uh, live active lives in the world. But what does it mean to live lives that are faithful to Jesus in the midst of a culture that oftentimes is at odds with his values and his priorities and his kingdom? What does it look like? How can we live those kind of lives? Well, I want to invite you to bring those questions with us into the narrative that we're going to be looking at today in 1 Kings chapter 18. You know, I think one of the reasons why the stories about Elijah were given to the people of God was to help us see what it looks like to be faithful to God in the midst of a culture that is sliding further and further away from him. And that is something that all of us in this room need to grapple with. How do we remain faithful to God in the midst of a culture and a world that so often in its values and its priorities and its mindset and its worldview is sliding away from God? And the stories about Elijah are given in many ways to help us wrestle with that question and to see models of how to live faithfully in a culture that is sliding away from God. And today I want to invite you to look at two characters that are presented to us in the first half of 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, just a little editorial comment, a little note. Um, I was going to jump right into the second half of 18 this week. I had studied it. I had worked on it. And, uh, you know, it's the famous uh, passage, you know, like in this image right here where Elijah calls fire down from heaven on the, on the altar and consumes the sacrifice in the altar. And the, you, know, you know that story? It's cool, and it's dramatic, and it's awesome, and we're going to get into it next week. But as I was studying the text, I couldn't get away from the first half of 18. And in many ways, I felt like, I, have I even read this text before? It's like, it, it seems like, you know, I got so, I, I moved so quick to the main event that I forgot to read the prelude to the showdown. And the prelude is of utter importance. And in fact, in this prelude, we encounter two characters. One, of course, is going to be Elijah. Another is a man named Obadiah, who I think give us two different models of faithfulness in the midst of our world. And so we're going to look at each one of these two models, Elijah and Obadiah. And let's begin by looking together at Elijah. Notice what it says. It says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So we were introduced to Elijah at the beginning of chapter 17. He appears uninvited, unannounced. You know, Ahab didn't call for him, nobody was asking for him, and yet there he was, called by God to stand in the midst of this culture and to speak truth to power. And he confronts Ahab, he says, there's going to be no rain. Why no rain? Well, because uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the people in worshiping Baal, who was the god of rain, he was the storm god. And so 
God confronts his people right at the place of their idolatry and said, I'll show you who is the true creator of heaven and earth, the God of rain and the God of the storm. It is not Baal, it is the God of Israel, and so no rain. And now uh, it is three years later. So now it's been three years of famine, Uh, there's hard times in the land, and now God has called Elisha to go and confront Ahab once again. And uh, so as the story, you know, winds down up in uh, verse 17 and 18, uh, Elijah, who is called to speak to Ahab, now meets and encounters Ahab. And look at their exchange. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You know, and I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but you just have in mind, you know, a Grima Wormtongue, you know, and Theoden, when Gandalf appears, is it you, Storm Crow, you know, bringer of ill news? Okay. Um. But Elijah, see, Ahab sees Elijah, he's like, is it, it's you. You're the guy. You troubler of Israel. It's interesting, this phrase, troubler of Israel, uh, is, uh, is a familiar phrase in the Old Testament. And it's used in the book of Proverbs, in fact, this word troubler, uh, to describe somebody who disturbs the social fabric, somebody who disturbs the well-being of the community. And in the book of Proverbs in 1517, it is the one who is greedy for unjust gain who disturbs the well-being of the community. And we we see an example of that in the book of Joshua, Achan, after uh, the fall of the walls of Jericho, Achan goes in and 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 he greedily takes 200 shekels from for himself at the expense of the community. And God confronts him, and when he confronts him, he is called the troubler in Israel. And in fact, uh, the valley that he is put to death in is called the valley of trouble because this is somebody who disturbs the social fabric. And Ahab sees Elijah, and he says, Elijah, you, you're the troubler of Israel. You're disturbing the social fabric. And in some sense, he was right. Elijah was disturbing the status quo. And of course, this is one way you can relate to culture around you. You can disturb the status quo. You can upset business as usual. And this is what Elijah was doing. And so Ahab says, is it you, the troubler of Israel? And listen to what he answered. He says, me, the troubler of Israel? He says, I have not troubled Israel. You have troubled Israel. You and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. And as you track the story of Ahab, you realize that it's not Elijah who is disturbing the social fabric of the community in Israel. It is Ahab. The beginning of his story, we hear about him going and taking two cities and building them. It says at the expense of his two sons, which in the ancient world they would offer child sacrifice sometimes to secure the well-being of the city. And here he is giving up his sons at the end of his story. It's bookended with a story of him taking a piece of land that belongs to a, 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 a poor peasant farmer who lives next door to him. And he steals his land for his own selfish gain. And so Elijah 
speaks truth to power and he says, you are disturbing the community through your greed, through your unjust practices, through your idolatry, you are taking the community away from faithfulness to Yahweh. And so in Elijah, we are seeing here the first posture, I think, the first place we can find ourselves in the midst of a world that is kind of sliding away. We can first uh, play the role, perhaps, of Elijah. Uh, He is the prophet who opts out of the system and whose words and way of life challenge the system. Elijah is the one who opts out of the system and whose words and way of life challenges the system. Uh, you, could, you could put it like this. Elijah is embodying in his own way of being a different kind of reality. He is inhabiting a culture of death. You remember in the previous story, the widow's son dies, and in the midst of death, Elijah is doing works of life that bring life in the midst of death. And then earlier in the story, in the midst of a culture of scarcity and famine, Elijah is testifying to the abundance and the gracious provision of God. By how he is living, by how he's engaging in this world, he is bringing life in the midst of death. He is bringing abundance and generosity in the midst of scarcity. And here he is embodying a sign in his own way of life toward the coming kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of abundance and a kingdom of life and a kingdom of peace and justice, and he's embodying it in his own way of life right in the midst of this old world. And this is one way I think we can act in this world, is we can embody in different ways of being in this world by how we use our money, by how we speak our words, by the choice of lifestyle we embrace, the standard of living we choose to live at when we could be up here, we choose to go down here and we take this excess cash and we start giving it away in radical generosity. We could have um, lived in this neighborhood, but instead we choose to live in this more resource-depleted community so that we can go and be the presence of Christ in the midst of that community. We can embody a different way of being in the midst of this old world. You know, um, I can remember uh, a few months ago, or actually a couple years ago, uh, talking with a new friend of mine whose name was Greg, and uh, Greg Olsky. Uh, We met him down in Mexico, and Greg is the consummate surf bum, and he's been a surf bum for decades. And um, Greg exposed me to a way of being in this world that I didn't even know was an option. And he said that when he was just 17, 18 years old, uh, he started first working at the slopes uh, in Aspen, and he would just ski all winter. And then uh, he would make enough money, and then he would go and use that money to buy a plane ticket, and he would go live on the cheap in Bali or Indonesia, and he'd just surf all summer long. And um, if you talk to Greg, you know, he started this at 18. The dude is like 47, he's my age, 47 years old right now. And he is still doing it. And now he's got a wife and a child and he's still just snowboarding all winter and surfing throughout most of the rest of the year and just trying to cobble together resources to pay for that kind of lifestyle throughout the rest of the year. And I thought when I was 18, I didn't even know that was a possibility. I mean, I thought you had to go get a real job and have like a career path and go to college and get, you know, and um, and, and, and he opted out of the kind of quote-unquote American dream and the ideal, and he's living an alternative way of being. 
And when you see it, you're like, oh, there's a different way of doing things. And Elijah is doing something of the same, but embodying in his life the values of the kingdom of God in the midst of the culture he is inhabiting. He is saying, look, there is, there's a different way of being in this world. You know, historically, in the church, monastic community has played this role within sort of the broader church. You know, Jesus has these commands, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And monastic communities, oftentimes, they take vows and they sell everything they have and they live to the poor, they give to the poor and they live in community saying, look, my life does not consist in the abundance of things we possess. I can have no personal possessions, share all in common, and life can still be well, and I can still find joy in God. They are living a different way of life in the midst of a culture that thinks that's just bizarre and impossible. Monastic communities oftentimes serve this kind of prophetic witness. And of course, there are new monastic movements, even in in our world today, people who are doing things that are totally outside of the box, outside of the system, that you just think that's so different. Uh, There's a Christian leader, some of you might know him, his name is Shane Claiborne. And he is something, uh, he's, he's a guy who lives in his own life, something of a prophetic witness in how he engages in this world. Uh, He has opted out kind of of the American dream. He's moved into uh, resource-depleted neighborhoods, and he just lives in community there, sharing resources. Uh, During the Iraq War about, I don't know, several years ago, he went there and served as a human shield uh, near orphanages and uh, hospitals. And he's a pacifist. And in his own life and in his way of interacting in this world, he is bearing witness that there is a peaceable kingdom. There is a kingdom of justice and love where it's not about violence, where, where actually you can lay down your life for your, your brothers and sisters. He's got a thing he's going on right now. He's going around the country doing these uh, little uh, uh, kind of like rallies where they invite people to come and bring their firearms and there uh, they get uh, welders and, and I don't know, and they, they melt them down and they turn them into farming instruments. And he's, he's, he's doing these things, not because he thinks that's going to get rid of all of the weapons in the United States. It's just saying, look, there is a different way of being in this world than simply living out of fear and a need of self-protection. And, uh, and there, there, there are communities of Christians and there are voices of Christians that, that speak out and offer a different way of being in this world and say, look, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't need to be so addicted to all these medications and, and, and we, don't, we don't need to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on military. And we don't, we don't need to. We, we can invest in other ways. We can form other kinds of alternate communities. And of course, there have always been throughout the, the history of the church prophetic voices that have stepped in and like Elijah, when it was dangerous and required courage and would take a great, great risk, they would speak truth to power. Frederick Douglass was one of those voices, the most listened to speaker of his age. I read a book a while back called uh, uh, Prophet of Freedom about Frederick Douglass. And it was was just striking reading his early speeches when he was on the margins, had no official role, no official power, and there he was speaking prophetically about the judgment of God coming down on this nation because of its sin of slavery. 
And of course, MLK was a prophetic voice speaking truth back in the 60s. And there have always been prophetic voices throughout the history of the church. You could say Billy Graham has been a prophetic voice doing public theology, speaking about Christ in public all over this world to more, you know, filling more stadiums, speaking that, that, that there is a way to healing and freedom. And it's not from more money and more wealth. It is through surrender of your life to Jesus. And so one way in which you can engage in this world is you can be a prophetic voice who, in, through your words and through your way of life, embodies a prophetic witness that there's a different way of being human in this world, that God's kingdom has broken into this world in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. New creation has begun. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated. The day is coming when the curtain will be rolled back and Jesus will be revealed to the world as its true king. And in that day, there will be no war or, or crying or pain. And, and, and God will make all things new. And we say, we hope for that day. We long for that day. And so we're going to form communities that act as a sign and witness, that opt out of this system, and that point for the day ahead. Now, there's a beauty to this kind of prophetic witness, right? And we need it. The church has always needed these kind of voices. We've needed these kind of communities to show us that there are alternate ways of being. But you know, there's a danger as well. And the danger of the prophet, like Elijah, is the danger of self-righteousness. And to think that you alone got it right. You are the only faithful one left. In fact, Elijah, you hear those words come out of his mouth in the very next story. He says, I and I alone am left of all the prophets of God. As if he's saying, like, am I the only one in the midst of this sea of compromised middle-class Americans that are living a faithful life to Jesus? I mean, he might say that to us. He would say that to me, you know. And, uh, and, and, and so there's a danger with the prophet. But of course, there's a beauty and there's a need for those prophets. So there's Elijah, the prophet who opts out of the system and whose words and way of life challenge the system. But, but in our text, and this is what's so interesting to me, this is not the only way to faithfully serve Christ in the midst of a world whose values and priorities and ways of life are increasingly moving further and further away from the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God. The other model that we have in our text is not Elijah, it's Obadiah. And this is interesting because look, look, look at how the text talks about Obadiah. It says, now, it's like we were, you know, it began... God says, go find Ahab to Elijah. And Elijah's like, okay. And then the camera pans back to the palace courts. And here we are, it's Ahab now talking with his uh, co-worker, as it were, Obadiah. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they're in crisis. There's no water. And they're wondering, like, how are we going to feed our, our horses and our mules? And they're going to die. And we need to go out and search and find some grass. And so Ahab concocts this plan. He says, look, Obadiah, you and I, we're responsible. We're going to go out and I'm going to go this way, and you're going to go in the other way. Look at what it says. 
He says, so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. I did think when I was reading this, you know, this is the king of Israel. Obadiah, the text tells us, was uh, uh, the head over all of Ahab's house. And the the indication is is that he is the highest-ranking official in Ahab's kingdom. So you've got Obadiah, the highest-ranking official, and you've got Ahab the king, and I'm thinking to myself, couldn't they have delegated this job out to somebody else? I mean, isn't this somebody else's job to go out and search the land? You know, I'm going to go here and you're going to go there. It's like, couldn't we have got a whole team on this one? But I, I don't know. Maybe he felt like, look, it, this is, this, it's crisis. And maybe Ahab's a control freak. He can't trust this job to anybody else. So if you want to do something right, you've got to what? Do it yourself. You know who you are. And um, this is Ahab. Ahab and Obadiah, they go out and Ahab goes in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. But the interesting thing is what the text tells us about Obadiah. It, it says two things. First, Obadiah is, is, is over the household of Ahab. So get this, Obadiah is not an outsider, he's an insider. He hasn't opted out of the system. Obadiah is employed by the system. Uh, Obadiah is not, you know, out hanging with the poor widows like Elijah. Obadiah is hanging out in the palace courts with Ahab. And so you have Obadiah, a consummate insider who holds the reins of power, who lives with immense privilege, and who, 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 who is given incredible authority and position. You have Obadiah right as an insider in power and prestige and privilege, and yet it tells us Obadiah, interestingly, is also a servant of Yahweh. Deeply embedded in the palace courts and a devoted servant of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? He's deeply committed. And it, it, again, it's just, it's just very, very different from Elijah. I mean, Elijah is an outsider. Obadiah is an insider. Elijah is there with the poor. Uh, you know, Obadiah is there with the rich. And yet both have this in common. They are both seeking to follow Yahweh faithfully. In fact, the text describes it like this. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and get this, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah, no doubt, with a risky act of faith, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and wine. Whose bread and wine, or did it say bread and wine? Bread and water, I'm sorry. This is Jesus, you know. He turned the water to wine, I turned the word water into wine. I'm just like Jesus. Um, Where was I? Oh, yes. Where, where did he get, whose, whose bread and water is he serving them with? Probably his own. And, and, and you know, they, they're going to kill the prophets. They, there's been an edict by his boss. You know, his boss is, uh, has commanded everyone to be killed, and he's going out and subverting the command of his boss, and that could get him not just fired, it could get him killed. 
And so this is a bold act, a courageous act of faith. Indeed, Obadiah. Obadiah's name means servant of Yahweh. In fact, a little bit later in the text, uh, when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and the people, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, and if Yahweh is God, then serve him. And it's like just in the prelude before that event, we get a model of somebody who, who is a servant of Yahweh, who treats Yahweh as God and is serving him. So he hides them, great cost to himself, and Obadiah now and Ahab are going off now in two directions, and as fate would have it, or um, I'm sorry, look at this says in the next verse. Oh yeah, as fate would have it, as Obadiah is traveling off in one direction and Ahab is in the other, uh, Obadiah's no doubt is looking around and he's checking out, he's looking at the like, and all of a sudden he looks up and there's Elijah. And Obadiah said to, or, or, um, where are we? I was seeing, oh, here we are. And Obadiah was on the way. Behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, he said, It is I. And, and Obadiah is just thrilled. He, he's a servant of Yahweh, and he's been lonely. You know, he's in the palace courts, and he can't find another brother to help him out. You know, now here's Elijah. He's like, Elijah, is it you? He's like, yes, it's me. And then Elijah says, now I want you to go and get Ahab and go and tell Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. Now, Obadiah doesn't like this plan at all. He doesn't like it at all because he's like, whoa, 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 wait. I'm going to leave you and go get Ahab, and if I come back and you're not here, Ahab's going to kill me because I didn't apprehend you, which is what I should be doing. Do you want to get me in trouble? And listen to what ensues. He said to him, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. He's looking all over the place. For these last three years, he wants nothing more than to get you and off with your head. And when, when, they, say, when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation and they that had not found you. And now you say, you're, you're going to say, go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you I know not where. You know, he's catastrophizing here. He's like, you know, the Lord's just going to carry you off somewhere, and, um, and, and I'm not going to find you. And then when, when we come back with Ahab and I can't find you, he's going to kill me. Although I, your servant, had feared the Lord for my youth. I've been fa- I'm on your team, Elijah. What are you, you're trying to get me in trouble? Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? Yes, it's been told us already. It came earlier in the text. But go ahead, Obadiah, tell us again. When Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And who do you think paid for that bread and water? And who do you think didn't have much bread and water left? And who took this risky step of faith? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He's going to kill me. You know, he repeats it not once, not twice, but three times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you're going to disappear and Eli- Ahab's going to kill me. And I love Elijah's response. Listen, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he told him, and, and Ahab went to meet Elijah 
and then our story about Obadiah ends. It's interesting, we meet Obadiah once in the biblical story, and it's here. This isn't Obadiah the prophet. Uh, we, we, we learn about him once, only once, and it's here. And here is what we learn about Obadiah. We learn that Obadiah, how is he responding to this fallen, broken culture around him? Obadiah is the one who stays in the system, yet at great cost to himself, leverages power and privilege to serve Christ and the common good from within. Some of you are like, did you spell leverages wrong? Did you see it? You're like, is that wrong? Chase? You don't know. It's good. Okay, just checking to see if you're all awake. Listen, let's just talk for a moment about Obadiah because I think probably in this room there's a whole lot more of us that have chosen to stay in the system. Like, we've got jobs, uh, sometimes within an education system or maybe a hospital system or a government system or a publishing world or an entertainment industry or a filmmaking world or whatever, where there, there are so many values and priorities that seem at odds to the kingdom of God, and yet there you are right in the midst like Obadiah. And let's just note a couple things about Obadiah. You know, it's true Obadiah was likely more comfortable than Elijah. I mean, after all, he had a pension, uh, you know, government pension. He had benefits, Cadillac benefits, no doubt. He had the food at the king's table. He had good vacation time. He had a lot going for him. But, but I would gather that this posture put him in a more complicated and conflicted place than Elijah. Elijah and those who take that kind of prophetic, that beautiful prophetic action, it's risky, it's costly, it's beautiful, but in some ways it's a lot neater and cleaner than people who have to stay in the system. It's a lot neater and cleaner to go and protest a war as a human shield than to actually have to be one of the people who is serving on the battlefield in that war. And asking new questions. What does it look like to be a Christian and in the military? What does it look like to be a Christian who has authority commanding militaries? What does it look like? uh, Yeah, I can opt out of big business and buy only, you know, my clothing at thrift stores and wear the same outfit every day or when you preach, which is what I do most of the time. But... um, (laughs) But what about those who have to stay in the fashion industry or who stay in corporations and who are, who are in complicated places? Like it's, diffi- it's, it's conflicted and it's complicated. And it's complicated for a couple reasons. It's complicated, of course, be- because the system so often is about something that you, you're, you're not sure you're about. And you're, you're wondering, what role do I play? And what does it look like to follow Jesus in this space? And, and, and I, I, I'm just sympathetic to so many of you who have had the courage to step into different fields and to pursue different careers that feel like it's risky and it's hard. Or maybe you're in college and you're like, I'm imagining this. And, and like, like, like it's, it's complicated. And it's complicated because oftentimes, like in this case, get this, Obadiah has to figure out when to work with Ahab, when their interests actually overlap, and when to work in a way that subverts the destructive ways of Ahab. 
Do you see that in the story? He works with Ahab. And no doubt, I mean, he probably thought, this is a great way for me to serve Yahweh is to try to find grass for the horses. I mean, doesn't the Proverbs itself say that a wise man or a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast? And isn't it an act of being a righteous follower of Yahweh to go out and search for fields to feed these horses? Yes, Ahab, you and I, we can work together. And of course, there are so many interests that you're engaged in and so many vocations that you're engaged in, whether it be in medicine or in law or in politics, where you can lock hands with people maybe who have a radically different set of priorities. Maybe they're even serving a different God than you, you know? And and you can work together because in some sense, you can serve Christ in this partnership with a common interest because of common grace and the way God's at work in this world, even through people who are His image bearers who do not believe. But it's complicated because there's some places where you're like, there's this other thing in this industry that's complicated, and, and I, I think it's, it's dehumanizing and it's destructive, and we need to subvert that, and whatever power or privilege or leverage I have, I need to do that, I need to use that to leverage that for the well, and that's how I'm going to serve Christ, sometimes by partnering with Ahab, sometimes by subverting the destructive ways Ahab of Ahab. Are you see what I, do you see what I mean? And this is Ahab. It's complicated. And, you know, it's, it's of course not the case that you need to be in the halls of power to be able to make a difference. I mean, this is the beauty of God's kingdom. You may never have made it into a place like Obadiah, where you actually are given significant authority and leadership, where you can leverage the power, the influence you have in order to feed a hundred prophets. Maybe you're just like the widow who in that society is on the margins and you're poor and your job is not to feed the hundred, it's to feed the one Elijah as an act of faith. God can use you either, whether you're at the top of, of you know, whatever society deems as being, or kind of more impoverished and at the bottom. God can use you all across the board. But he, here's the thing that unites both Elijah and Obadiah together. Here's where they are the same. They are both deeply devoted to Yahweh. A little bit later, Elijah's going to say, choose this day whom you will serve. And the reason why Elijah was able to make a difference in the midst of his day, and the reason why Obadiah was able to leverage his power and his influence in his day, in in a way that served the human good, it, it, it promoted human flourishing, and we're still telling their story today. They have a story worth telling. And why was it? Well, because they know whose they were, They know to whom they belonged, and they had made a decision that their lives were going to be about fidelity and faithfulness to God. And Elijah will speak those words, choose this day whom you will serve. Stop jumping between two opinions and make a decision. And some, and and I think when it comes to actually making a difference in our culture, and being a force for the common good and living in a way that honors and serves Jesus, I think it begins here. It begins with with the decision and intention of who you will be and what you're gonna be about and the kind of integrity you're gonna hold on to and the kind of values you're gonna pursue and what you will not accommodate to and where you will not compromise. I will not do that. Life is gonna be about something more, something bigger, something more beautiful than all of that. 
I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. And they had made this decision, and then they had embraced what this decision would cost. You know, it would be a risky act of faith for Elijah to stand up with his prophetic witness, and it would be a risky act of faith for Obadiah to stand up and care and take care of those prophets at great cost to himself and with risky faith, he would need to jump in and, 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 and just do it. And they had decided that this is who they were and what they would be about and what they were willing to embrace. And I just wonder, have you? Have you, have I? Have we decided what we are gonna be about in this world and whose we are? We belong to the God of Israel, the creator of all things, the God who has acted in this world in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and we belong to him. Our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price and therefore we are called to make a decision to honor God with our body and with our life that has been purchased by him. Have you, do you? And if you counted the cost, it's gonna cost you something. It costs to pursue the common good, to live self-sacrificial, loving, you know, lives in this world, to not live for the bottom line and our status and our image and our comfort, but to live for something else, it costs us something. And you know, I think the only way that you and I can live into that kind of commitment and embrace that kind of cost is if we are apprehended by this idea, by this proclamation, this truth, that the God of Israel, the creator of all things, long before Elijah or Obadiah ever made their decision or took their costly action, the God of Israel, the creator of all things, had decided had committed himself to his creation. And he had covenanted and promised himself to his people to say that I will be for you no matter what and I will never be against you and I will come into this world in the person of my son Jesus and in a great act of costly love, I will be in this world and bear the pains and the wounds and the sins of this world for the sake of this world so that all of us might ultimately experience his healing, renewing love when we open our lives up to him. Father, we ask now that as we come to the table that your, spirits would, your spirit would open our hearts and our mind afresh to your love and your covenanted self that you have committed yourself fully and reservedly to us. And God, would you enable us to respond to your love with lives of commitment and obedience and faithfulness in the midst of this age. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.